invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. The last chapter in the letter to the Hebrews, which is near the end of the New Testament, right before the letter to James. Hebrews 13, and on this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to consider a wonderful text that is deeply rooted in the resurrection of our Lord. Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21. And I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do confess this morning that our hearts are glad to know the truth of the Gospel, that our hearts are confident in You. We're not confident in ourselves, God. We're not hopeful in and of ourselves. We know, Father, both from the state of our own hearts and from the state of the world around us that life in this world is often difficult and full of fiery trials as we just sang in that last song. And yet we have this assurance, God, that Christ is risen from the dead, that You have brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Would You help us now, Father, to hear His Word? Would You help us to hear with ears of faith? Would You help us, Father, to not only hear, but then to do, Father, from obedient hearts, trusting in Your goodness and in Your grace? Father, please keep me from error as we consider the things of Your Word now for a few brief moments. And please grant Your people discernment that they would know the truth, God, and that they would grow in the truth and thus bring glory to Your name. And we do pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2013, the Atlantic magazine asked a panel of historians the following question. What day most changed the course of history? That's every historian's favorite question. The list of responses, as you might guess, was was fascinating. One historian said June 28, 1914 was the most pivotal day. That's the day Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated and Europe plunged into World War I. Another historian said the day in 1440 that Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press so that we could have books like the ones you're holding in your hand. Another said July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence and the promulgation of liberty and life. As you might guess, there were a number of answers. And all the responses were fascinating. And there was a broad range from events to inventions, from battles to people. In fact, the one consistent feature of the panel in this article was the inconsistency. No two historians agreed. And no event was listed more than once. If, however, you asked a group of Christians the same question, the answer would be different, wouldn't it? The inconsistency of historians would be replaced by the confidence of Scripture. And on the authority of God's Word, Christians proclaim that what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Christ, was the day that most changed the course of history. Resurrection Sunday is the most pivotal day that has ever occurred on the face of the earth. 
Think about it, friends. Just, just think about it in terms of human society. The resurrection of Christ is foundational to Christianity, and since the resurrection, Christianity has arguably been the most potent force for good in the world. The course of human society has absolutely been shaped by what we celebrate today. But it goes deeper than human society. In terms of redemption, Resurrection Sunday is the most pivotal day in history. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. And that means all of them. From the first promise in Genesis to the last promise in Revelation, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. And they do so because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. No eternal life. No forgiveness of sins. No knowledge of God the Father. All of those realities rest on the resurrection of Christ. Human history is actually not the best label. Redemptive history is more accurate. And no day is more significant to redemptive history than the resurrection of Christ. But it goes deeper still, doesn't it? Redemptive history ultimately has a bearing on individual, personal lives. So in both your life and mine, the resurrection of Christ is the most significant day that has ever happened. I I know that's a massive claim, but consider this fact, friends. Every human being who has ever lived will face eternity based on what they believe about the resurrection of Christ. Just grasp the gravity of that statement. The resurrection of Christ is the great dividing line of humanity. There are really only two groups of people. There are those who by God's grace rejoice in this day and trust in Christ. And then there are those who reject this day and scoff at the notion of a resurrected God. The resurrection is the great dividing line of humanity. You see, the Lord Jesus rose again some 2,000 years ago, but that one day is the moment that will define each person's eternity. So, from human society to redemptive history to the course of individual lives, the resurrection of Christ is without doubt the most significant day in history. In fact, you could say that the resurrection is the lens through which the rest of life must be viewed. Our view of God, our view of the world, our view of ourselves, our view of eternity, everything, friends, everything is shaped by what happened at the empty tomb. Historians can debate all day what was the most pivotal point in history, but as those who believe God's Word, we actually know that the answer is clear. The resurrection of Christ is the central event, not just for history in general, but for the life of individual human beings. It's central. It's the lens through which all other things must be viewed. And our passage this morning is a good example of why this is true. As you can see there in your Bibles, this passage is the end of the book of Hebrews. It's the closing benediction to the letter to the Hebrews. Here the author sends his final greetings. He offers his final prayer for the believers to whom he has written. So, this is the author's last chance to impress upon them the reality of God. This is his last chance to tell them what is most important. This is his final shot to grip them with the truth. And notice the truth that does frame his final words. Notice how he spins his last shot, so to speak. Look again at verse 20 and catch how the author describes God. Of all the the ways that he could describe God, this is how he does. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus... 
So what is the author's emphasis as he closes? It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the truths in all of the Bible that he could use to describe God, the truth that he focuses on is the resurrection. God is the God of the resurrection. Jesus is the shepherd who was dead but is now alive. God's power in His people is the power of the resurrection. You see, as this text illustrates for us, the resurrection of Christ is the lens through which we see and understand all other truths. Without the resurrection, we are alone and without hope in this world and above all people most to be pitied. But through the resurrection... Believers are alive and secure in the promise of eternal life with Christ Jesus, our Lord. The resurrection then is not only the most pivotal day in history, it is the foundation, it is the heartbeat even, of the Christian faith. And so what I'd like to do this morning for the few moments that we have together is consider from this passage in Hebrews Four realities revealed in and through the resurrection. Four truths that are anchored here in the resurrection and that should color the way we see the rest of life, including, most importantly, ourselves. So, four resurrection realities. Number one, the resurrection reveals the certainty of salvation. The resurrection reveals the certainty of salvation. You don't have to read the Bible for very long before you learn that there is a problem between humanity and God. It takes the Bible all of three chapters to establish that something has gone wrong. Genesis 3 tells us how Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, even disobeying the clear command of God's Word. Friends, the Bible calls that problem sin. And it's rebellion against God. And from Genesis 3 onward... Scripture describes often in painful detail the consequences of humanity's sin. We are separated from God by our own doing. The relationship between us and God is fractured. It's broken even. And worst of all, there is hostility between humanity and God. You don't have to read the Bible for very long to see how this plays out. It takes all of three chapters to know that there is a problem. But then we come to the New Testament and we read passages like this one from Hebrews you'll notice that the author addresses his prayer to the God of peace in verse 20. Friends, that title for God, the God of peace, should take your breath away. We should be astonished that this does not say the God of judgment. We should be astonished that it does not say the God of wrath, or even the God of power, or even the God of holiness. Considering the depth of our sinful rebellion against God, that is exactly how we should expect to meet the Almighty. Not in peace, but in terrifying judgment that we deserve. And yet, that's not what we find here in verse 20. Here we find a prayer that is addressed to the God of peace. And understand, friends, the peace in view here is not simply the absence of conflict. The peace has to do with salvation. The peace in view here is about reconciliation. This peace is the work of Jesus Christ who laid down His life to bear God's wrath against sin. Remember, that's what the cross is about, friends. I read an article this week from a former um, 
He's a son of a former Baptist pastor, and he tried to make the case that the, cost, that the cross of Jesus Christ is about giving us an example how love, self-sacrificial love, is what the world needs more of. And there's certainly self-sacrificing love at work in the cross. But at its core, friends, the cross is about the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God for the sins of the people of God. There's no other way to understand the cross. If it's just self-sacrificing love, then it's a really, really bad example. Because He dies. This is what the cross is about at its core. It is God's work to reconcile sinners to Himself. It is God's work to take the initiative and to come down among us and to do away with the hostility and to reestablish the peace that we destroyed. But if we stop with the cross then we actually miss out on the peace. If you only hear one thing today, I hope you hear this. It's, it's one thing to say that Christ died to pay for sin, but still the question remains, how do we know that His payment was good? How do we know that Christ's blood satisfied God's wrath? Friends, the resurrection is the answer. The empty tomb is the demonstration that Christ's death was sufficient to save sinners like us. The empty tomb is the tangible proof that salvation is not a mere possibility, but a certainty accomplished in Christ. You see, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday have to be kept together. In fact, without Resurrection Sunday, it's not Good Friday. It's just Friday. The cross declares that Christ's blood has been shed and the empty tomb declares that Christ's blood was sufficient. You have to have both in order to know God as the God of peace. And let's not breeze over this too quickly, brothers and sisters. I do want to press home to you how marvelous it is to know God as the God of peace. I want us to be reminded today of just what the resurrection means for those who belong to God. It means... There is no hostility between you and God. There is no hostility between you and God. This is foundational gospel truth. But God help us to never forget it. When Jesus died on the cross, a divine transaction took place. A divine transaction. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, took the sins of His people upon Himself and the Holy God of the universe crushed His Son under the weight of His wrath. At the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had committed the sins of God's people. Just try to fathom that for a moment. The sinless Son of God being treated as though He had lied. As though He had lost His temper. As though He had manipulated other people. As though He had abused other people. As though He had ignored God. As though He had mocked God's Word and broken all of God's commandments. Every sin that every believer would ever commit, God placed upon His Son. And then God crushed His Son under His holy judgment. But the good news of the Gospel is that Christ satisfied that wrath. God crushed Him and Jesus lived again. He took the wrath, He cried out, it is finished, and then He rose again because there's no wrath left to bear. If you belong to Christ today by faith, then Christ has satisfied God's wrath against your sin. 
And listen to me, that little word your is significant. He bore your sins if you belong to Him by faith. Even the sins that you cannot fathom being known by others. Even the the sins that even now wake you up in the middle of the night and still haunt you with thoughts of shame. He bore those sins. And He didn't just bear them. He completely paid for them. And His resurrection is God's promise to you that the payment was good. The resurrection is the reason there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, all the hostility has been dealt with once and for all. And the empty tomb is the certain demonstration that salvation is not a possibility, but an accomplishment in Christ. And it belongs to those who belong to Him by faith. You see, there's a world of good news just in that title, the God of peace. It's what we celebrate today and every Lord's Day. It's the good news of the resurrection of the Son of God. A resurrection that reveals to us the certainty of salvation. That's the first reality we need to see. The second flows directly from the first. The resurrection reveals the triumph of Christ. The resurrection reveals the triumph of Christ. Again, let's go back to the beginning. To Genesis and humanity's sin in the garden. When the man and the woman sin against God, God declares that the consequence for their sin is death, both physical and spiritual. And remember, God created them, so He has the right to enforce upon them any consequence that He says, because He's the Creator. He created them, so He owns them. They sin, God says consequence is death, physical and spiritual. And then as Scripture continues to roll on, sin and death seem to go unchallenged. In fact, when you read in Genesis, after chapter 3, chapter 4 onward, there's this refrain, so-and-so lived so many years and he died. So-and-so lived so many years and he died. People sin and they die, and on and on it goes, to the point that even the so-called good guys sin and die. Everyone dies. And so as you, look at, as you look at human history, it seems like the consequences of the garden, sin and death, will just continue to roll on. They'll just continue to roll forward, unchecked. Then we come to passages like this one in Hebrews, and everything changes. Notice again how the author describes the work of God. What is it that the God of peace has done? Verse 20, He has brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Again, friends, that statement should take your breath away. Most of us are probably familiar with Easter Sunday, so it's easy to just kind of overlook the significance of this, but this should take your breath away. Did the author of Hebrews really just say that someone faced death and won? Did he really just say that someone went in a tomb and then walked out of a tomb alive? Is that what he really just wrote? Yes, it is. That's what the Scriptures say. It should take your breath away. And that creates this hopeful, glorious good news that sin and death will not triumph. That sin and death will not have the final word. God has defeated death by subjecting His own Son to the penalty of death. But that Son is dead no longer. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that means sin and death will not have the victory. Sin and death will not have the final word. Christ does. And His final word is that it is finished. But this good news gets even better. Notice how the 
author of Hebrews describes the resurrected Jesus. Again, verse 20, He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Friends, that's a title of leadership. In rising from the dead, Jesus has taken His place at the front of God's flock. And there at the front, He is leading His people where they could not lead themselves. He is leading His people to experience His own triumph over the grave. Friends, what an encouragement that should be to those who belong to Christ. At every step of the Christian life, the Lord Jesus is out front. He is leading us through the power of His resurrection. He has gone before us and has endured great suffering in order to blaze the trail of glory. Christ is presently interceding for us, carrying out His ministry before the Father. And He will return again very soon to bring us safely to the heavenly city. Wherever we find ourselves in the race of the Christian life, we're never running alone. The Lord Jesus is there out front leading His people onward to glory. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And what's more, friends, Christ's resurrection leadership cannot fail. It cannot fail. Notice that I did not say it will not fail. I said it cannot fail. There is no chance that the great shepherd will fail to lead us home. It's not possible. It cannot happen. Jesus does not fail to lead His people. How can we say that? Because the tomb is empty. That's why we can say that. If Christ has defeated sin and death, then there are no enemies left that could possibly harm His people. The worst thing the world can do to you is to take your life. And they took Jesus' life and He rose again. So perhaps the worst thing the world can do is not that bad at all. Because we'll live again with Him. You see it? He leads out front and there's nothing that can harm His people. So if you're a Christian this morning, verse 20 is telling you that you're not alone. Listen to me. If you're a Christian this morning, verse 20 is telling you that you're not alone. Whatever valley you face, Jesus faced it. Whatever darkness you endure, Jesus endured it. He has been through every possible experience of life in this world, even death. And He stands now to lead His people through those same experiences. If you belong to Christ by faith, you're not alone. You have a great shepherd who has triumphed over the grave. And He stands to lead you on in the power of His own resurrection. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. There's one more point we should note about verse 20, and it gets to the personal nature of Christianity. Notice how the author says, our Lord Jesus in verse 20. Did you catch that? He doesn't just say the Lord Jesus, but our Lord Jesus. You see, the gospel goes beyond mere intellectual assent. Both Satan and the demons all agree that Jesus is risen from the dead. They all agree with that, but they don't trust in His resurrection. Do you see what I'm saying? The gospel goes beyond mere intellectual assent. The gospel calls for fellowship and communion and affection that flows from a personal embrace of Christ by faith. He is our Christ, as the author says in verse 20. He is either our Christ or He is not your Christ. There's that personal rootedness. And so I would just ask you this morning, friends, have you embraced the gospel message with that kind of personal trust? Have you confessed your sin to God 
and trusted in Christ alone as your Savior. Perhaps you're here this morning because it's Easter, and that's what you're supposed to do in America. You go to church on Easter. Perhaps you're here because someone invited you, but you're not actually sure that you believe any of this. Perhaps your connection to Christianity over the years has never actually been personal. Sure, you've gone to church, and perhaps you believe that there's a God, but you have never said what verse 20 says, that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that He's your Lord by faith. If that's you this morning, then I do pray that God would use His Word even now to open your eyes and see and believe in the risen Christ. There's only one God, the Maker of heaven and earth. And there's only one way to know God as Father. And that's through faith in His Son, the crucified and resurrected Christ. In fact, that's what the Scriptures are calling you to do this morning. Please do not take my word for it. Your being here is not an accident. And it's God's Word that is calling you to turn from sin and to believe that Christ lived and died and rose again for your salvation. Again, don't take my word. Take God's word for it. And so I just simply say to you, won't you hear that message and by God's grace believe that Christ is risen. The resurrection reveals the triumph of Christ and those who trust in Him will experience that triumph as well, even for all eternity. That's number two. Number three, the, resurrec- the resurrection reveals the assurance of the gospel. The, resurre- the resurrection reveals the assurance of the gospel. You'll notice in verse 20 that the author describes how God raised Christ from the dead. It was by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, covenant is one of those massively significant biblical words To summarize it much too quickly, God relates to people through covenants. And these covenants are binding agreements that define both parties' responsibilities in the relationship. It's how God relates to someone, through a covenant. The Old Testament describes the life of God's people under what's called the Old Covenant. That's why it's called the Old Testament. It's life under the Old Covenant. This is what God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The Old Covenant contained God's law, the sacrifices, plans for tabernacle worship, everything that was needed for the people to live in relationship with God. Now, if you have read the Old Testament at all, you probably know that the Old Covenant didn't work out perfectly. It wasn't the covenant's fault, and it wasn't God's fault. It was the people's fault. They lacked the heart to keep God's law. In fact, God's law, which was intended to govern the relationship between God and His people, the law actually ended up illuminating how much the people needed something other than the law. Something better than the law. But then towards the end of the Old Testament, there's the promise of a new covenant. And this covenant would be good news for God's people because it would address the root of the problem. This new covenant promised that God would give His people new hearts. Hearts that would delight to do God's will. So old covenant that was insufficient to accomplish salvation, the promise of a new covenant. Now look again at verse 20 here in verse in here in Hebrews. Christ was raised from the dead how? By the blood of the eternal covenant. You see the author is reminding us that Jesus's death and resurrection established that promised new covenant. What God's people so desperately needed, Christ provided. In his death and resurrection, he has established by his own blood the new covenant. 
And yet, there is a unique point being made here in verse 20. Notice again how the author describes this covenant. He calls it the eternal covenant. It's the only place in the New Testament where it's called the eternal covenant. It's unique. And the point has to do with durability. Christ's blood-brought covenant will never pass away. That's the point. The old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ, but the new covenant, that covenant is eternal. You see, that's what the author is getting at. The covenant Christ has established is not a shadow, but the substance. It's not limited, but effective. It's not temporary, but eternal. And it endures forever. So think about what this means for us, brothers and sisters, as believers in Christ. Let's apply Christ's eternal covenant to our lives. I know that we, by definition, can't grasp eternity, but let's just try as much as we can. This covenant that Christ has established has existed as far back in eternity past in the mind of God Himself. It didn't come into being simply at the cross and the resurrection. It has always been the purpose and plan of God. And this covenant will exist as far forward as eternity future. It has no ending point. It will never run out. And it cannot be replaced. So no beginning and no end. That's the scope of this eternal covenant. Which means that believers are bound to God with an unbreakable bond. It's unbreakable. As far back as eternity past, God has loved His people in Christ. And as far forward as eternity future, God will love His people in Christ. And this covenantal love cannot be broken, for it is sealed with the blood of the Son of God, who was raised from the dead. You see, the Christian's relationship to God is not rooted in what we have done, but in the gospel work of Christ, supremely so in the resurrection. So, if you belong to Christ today, then you should take comfort from this. If you have been born again by God's grace, there is nothing that can separate you from your covenant-keeping God. The resurrection of Christ is the assurance that God will keep you forever through the Gospel. The resurrection is the assurance that God will keep you forever in the Gospel. Understand, friends, so many of the promises we hold precious are rooted right here in this truth. Jesus promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How is that true? Because we're bound to Him in the eternal covenant. The Apostle Paul says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can that be? Because we're bound to God by the blood of Christ, the resurrected Christ, the risen and eternal Christ. You, you see, do you see the connection? The encouragement in verse 20 is the soil in which those gospel promises grow. So take this truth to heart, brothers and sisters. The resurrection of Christ is the assurance that God will keep His people forever through the gospel. The only way that God could lose His children is if Jesus were have to somehow go back into the tomb and be dead again. And that could never happen. He's alive forever. He can never die again. And therefore, God will keep His people to the end. The new covenant cannot be broken. The gospel will not fail. How do we know this? Because the tomb is empty. The resurrection is our assurance that the gospel will keep us to the end. That's number three. Number four, and finally, the resurrection reveals the provision of the Father. The, resur the resurrection reveals the provision of the Father. 
You'll notice in verse 21 that the author finally gets to his request. Notice the request, verse 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. There's a lot to consider from that verse, but I'd like us just to focus on the Father's provision for His children. God has given His children all that they need for life in this world. In fact, the author to the Hebrews leaves no doubt. The Father has equipped believers with everything good. And everything means everything. Think about that for a moment, friends. When God the Father sets His people out on the Christian life, He does not say, man, I hope you got what it takes to make it to the end. He does not say, yeah, I've given you a good start, but you better finish it on your own. And if you don't, eh, you're just not going to be able to make it. That's not what God says. No, the Father equips us with everything that we could possibly need. I mean, consider just for a moment all that the Father gives to His children. He gives His children the Holy Spirit who dwells in God's people and conforms them to the image of Christ. God gives His children spiritual gifts that enables them to be a blessing to God and a blessing to others. God gives His children His Word, His holy, inspired, life-giving, soul-sustaining Word. His Word that is able to make us wise and give us insight. His Word that reveals truth and proclaims to us the precious promises of the Gospel. God gives His children the church, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters who are committed to helping us hold fast in the faith. And most incredible of all, God gives His children Himself so that whatever we face in the Christian life, we face it with the confidence that God is for us and that He will not leave us or forsake us in Christ. The Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, the Scriptures, the body of Christ, God Himself. Brothers and sisters, that is everything good. That is everything good. And this is the Father's provision to those who are His. And His provision is perfect. And yet, if we miss this next connection, then perhaps we miss the glory of it all. How can the Father give us such perfect provision? Or to say it a different way, why do we get so many good things from God and not the judgment we deserve? The answer, friends, is the resurrection of Christ. It is not an accident that verse 20 precedes verse 21. We have to have Christ living, dying, and rising again in verse 20 before we get the goodness and the gifts of God in verse 21. Do you see it? You've got to have verse 20 first. Before anything else, we need Christ resurrected for us. Before anything else, we need the great shepherd of the sheep. And only then, in light of His resurrection, do we receive from the Father all that we need for life and godliness. It's because of the empty tomb that God can say He's given us Everything. Everything. In fact, the point is even deeper than that. Because the tomb is empty, we also have the assurance that the Father is not presently holding out on us. Several years ago, there was a book that came out called Your Best Life Now. It's not a good book. You shouldn't read it. But my problem with the book is the premise that there is somehow something better that God is not giving you now, that if you just figure out today what you ought to be doing, then He'll give you all the good things that you're missing. So leave aside all the stuff about prosperity. That premise that there's somehow a better life that God has not given you that He would if you would just straighten up, 
That premise defies the goodness of God. And it disputes the goodness of the Gospel. He's not holding out on you. If you are a Christian, what God has given you today is His perfect provision in Christ. And the empty tomb is the Father's promise to you that the provision is enough. That there's not some little thing lacking. In that sense, we can think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Maybe the most precious sentence in the Bible. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And the answer is, He he won't fail to give us. Because He has given us in Christ. You see, it's it's the same promise in Hebrews 13. And again, why is that promise true? Because the tomb is empty. That's why it's true. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to end with this encouragement. There will be seasons when your Christian life feels like anything but victorious. I know that Easter Sunday is supposed to be the day that you know, like we, we, we experience peak Christianity. And yet, what was true yesterday is still true today. <laughs> Still got bills I can't pay and kids who are wayward and a job that is frustrating and a health that's failing. There will be seasons when your Christian life feels like anything but victorious. There will be seasons when you've got no strength left to fight the good fight of faith. It may even be that way for you right now, this morning, even on Resurrection Sunday. But if so, I pray that you will look to the resurrection of Christ and see in the empty tomb the Father's provision of everything you need. I pray you'll see how the resurrection of Christ is both a reality and a promise. It's a reality in that Christ can never die again. His work of salvation is finished once and for all. And it's a promise that right now, the Father stands ready to provide what you need for life and godliness. Look to God's Word, brothers and sisters. Remember the promises of God now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hold to the Gospel and remember the blessed truth that the resurrection says to us that through the Gospel, God holds on to us to the very end. The resurrection reveals to us with absolute certainty that the Father is for us and that He has provided all we need for life and godliness. Certainty of salvation, the triumph of Christ, the assurance of the Gospel, the provision of the Father. Each of those truths is unbelievably precious to Christians. And each of those truths is revealed to us in what we celebrate today, the resurrection of our Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, what better way to end Resurrection Sunday than with the declaration that ends our passage, verse 21. May the God of peace work in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to know You as the God of the resurrection. We are grateful that You have revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep who was dead and is now alive and who is out front, Father, of the flock leading us where we could not lead ourselves. And we marvel, Father, to know that in the Gospel, You have already provided for us all that we need for life and godliness. Father, help us to see the resurrection of Christ as the accomplishment of our salvation for those who believe. 
Help us to see it, Father, as the assurance that You will certainly lead us home. Father, and help, it, help us to be encouraged by the resurrection to know that You have given us, Father, in Your Word and in Your church and through Your Holy Spirit all that we need to know You, love You, serve You, and glorify Your name. And we pray, Father, that we would rejoice today in that hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.